Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Hi. It's nice to be here on a Sunday. <clears throat> so I've been working with teens teaching meditation for the past 10 years. And so it was a real treat to actually sort of put down what I know into a book form. And it started when I was teaching at Insight Meditation Society, or I was practicing at Insight Meditation Society, and they had a Burmese teacher, Saida Pandita, there who started saying, you need to have retreats for teenagers. And um, the teachers at the time didn't really want to. And ultimately, some people know Stephen Smith, Michelle McDonald Smith, they picked this up. And then a few years later, I started working with that. And it's been just an incredible privilege and pleasure to be able to do that over the years. And so I'm going to give a Dharma talk that I often give to teenagers, but adults (laughs) like it too. Um, because it's about something that I think everyone can relate to. It's the topic of um, from self-judgment to being yourself, from self-judgment to self-acceptance. So you know it's a problem in the teenage years. It's a problem in the every year, <laughs> the adult years, all of that. Um, I'm I'm struck how painful judgments are in our lives you know how so many of us just kind of attack ourselves all the time and it's this culture this culture of comparing this culture of the media the culture where you know you have to look a certain way or you feel like you don't you're not meeting the standards of beauty or cool or you know or or we get we get messages from our families we've been told that we're not we're not smart enough, we're not thin enough, we're not pretty enough, we're not handsome, whatever it is. I mean, these messages, they start so young, and then they kind of get internalized, as we know, inside ourselves. And then we become adults, and it's just, where is that horrible voice that keeps saying that thing to me? Where is it coming from? And of course, we see it on our cushion all the time. You know, we see this judging voice all the time. You're doing a horrible job today. (laughs) You should be sitting up straighter. You should be, um, look at that other person next to you. They're doing, they're such a good meditator and you're so lousy. I mean, this is, this, these are the ongoing judgments. And just to show the, um, the kind of universality of this, that it's not just, it's not just everyday people, it's everyone. I found this thing in, um, in O magazine, (laughs) which is, which is Oprah's magazine and she's interviewing Meryl Streep. Julianne Moore and Nicole Kidman. And during this interview, um, she says, she says, um, she says to them, oh, this is right before they put out the hours, and she says to them something like, or, or Meryl Streep says, well, you know, when I got invited to do this role, I was going to back out. And so Oprah says, Meryl, why have you tried to back out? And Meryl says, because I say to myself, I don't know how to act. And why? <laughs> And why does anybody want to look at me on screen anymore? So Oprah replies, that's a jaw dropper. <laughs> Meryl Streep thinks she can't act. And then Meryl says, lots of actors feel that way. What gives you strength is also your weakness, your raging insecurity. Um, Oprah says, somewhere inside yourself, don't you know you're the gold standard? And Meryl replies, but does that help? And then Oprah turns to Julianne Moore, who says, 
Julianne, I heard from your agent that after every film, you're sure you'll never work again. <laughs> I mean, this, these are like two of the most extraordinary actresses we have, right? And she says, well, at the beginning of a movie, I'm scared. By the middle, I'm doubting my choices. And by the end, I'm certain I've ruined the film. <laughs> Sometimes I'll even suggest other actors for the parts I'm offered. <laughs> and Nicole, Nicole came in and says, I do that too. I suggested you. <laughs> So anyway, um, this is—I mean, this is so pervasive. When when these these people who are clearly, you know, so such stars of our, you know, such brilliant actors, see themselves so poorly, and so do we. And I'm struck. I mean, most of us have heard the story of when the Dalai Lama was—I'll just tell it again in case you haven't—when the Dalai Lama was questioned about how to, by teachers, how do you deal with self-hatred? One of the teachers at a teacher conference said to him, "I think one of the most difficult issues that Westerners face is the issue of self-hatred," and he said, "What?" And they had to translate it and translate it and translate it. And finally, at the end, he said, he got it. Like, he, he didn't even compute. And then he said, oh, you shouldn't hate yourself. <laughs> that was his response. But it just from that sort of cultural standpoint, it didn't even make sense that people would hate themselves. I think if we were as mean, if, if somebody was as mean to us, as we are to ourselves often, then we would just be shocked. How could you say those horrible things to me? But we say them to ourselves all the time. And of course, not everybody suffers from this. And I want to be clear, if you don't, that's great. You're you're lucky. (laughs) One of the things I like to distinguish, particularly when I'm working with young people, is the difference between judging and discernment. So... Judging, discernment is something that the mind is naturally doing all the time. We're experiencing something and noticing, oh, I'm giving a talk, or the sky is blue, or that's a person with a blue shirt, or whatever. That's just discerning. It's a certain quality that we have in the mind, and there's nothing wrong with that. The judgment is the quality of mind that layers some aversion into it, like it's a problem. So you could get on a scale, for instance, and say... Um, I weigh 130 pounds, and that's discernment. But if you got on a scale and said, I weigh 130 pounds, I'm the most fattest, disgusting person <laughs> in the universe, right? That's, that's judging. So, so I mean, it's, it's fairly obvious, but it's, I think it's important to make this point because we're doing it all the time. We're, we're discerning, discerning, and we're, but then when does it go into that area of judgment? So the Buddha talked about the term mana, which some of you probably know. It's um, it's a term that is often translated as conceit, or measuring, or comparing, and so it means that that there's a there's a quality of um, the mind being less than, greater than, or equal to. So the less than one is the one we would normally call count as the self-hating voices. You know, I'm worse than. This is, but. And he says, anytime you're comparing, there's a sense of self. There's a sense of conceit coming up. And so the actual thing is not to even say, oh, well, I'm equal to everyone in the room. I'm better, I'm worse, I'm equal. But to find freedom from mana completely. To me, that teaching is actually quite profound because it reminds me that 
2,500 years ago, the Buddha had to give a teaching for people who were comparing themselves to others. So that, so I mean, it's been around a long time. We've all been saying, you know, I'm, I'm good, I'm bad, I'm, I'm not good, I'm whatever it is. But it's been happening for so for for thousands of years. Judgment arises in the meditation practice when we compare one sitting to the next, when we compare one retreat to a previous retreat. So this is comparing mind, it's judging, it's I was so much better last year in that retreat, what happened? I was so much better yesterday, how come my meditation isn't as good as it was yesterday? You know, Or... Um, wow, my meditation was really great and maybe I'm the best meditator in the entire room. You know, I mean, this is just this is the stuff of the mind. It just happens, right? It, but we're so conditioned. It's so in us. So how can we work with the judging mind, the comparing, the self-hatred? Clearly, as you know from doing mindfulness practice, that the first step is to identify it. Notice the judging that's happening when it's happening. So I'm feeling, um, you know, it's just, it's catching it for a lot of times. Because what happens is often if you don't catch it when it's small, it gets really big. And then you see it down the road 20, you know, an hour later, two hours later, and you're beating yourself up. But early on, if you can just see, or at any point really, if you can just see, oh, there's judging, there's comparing, there's hating myself. It's really, it's, it's simply voices, right? It's a voice arising in the mind. I like to remind people about the impermanent nature of the judging and the impermanent nature of who we are. So especially when I'm working with teens and I'm saying, okay, there's labels you could give yourself. I'm a sister, I'm a, you know, a soccer player, I'm a, I'm a whatever, I'm a punk rocker, I'm a this, I'm a that. These are just these labels that we apply to ourselves, and they come and they go. And so the same when, when we're having judgments. I'm, I'm terrible at my job. I'm really bad to my family. I'm whatever it is. These are, it's, it, none of it is sticking around. I mean, it's just a thought that's arising in the moment. So there's something useful for me if I can keep in the back of my mind that it's just something arising and it's not, it's not permanent, it's not sticking. So just reminding yourself of that simple truth of impermanence can be helpful. Some people try counting judgments. Have you ever done that? It's great. <laughs> like, uh, I actually gave this exercise to some younger kids, about 12, 13, and I, said, and I would meet with them on a monthly basis, and I said, okay, come back in a month and tell me how many judgments you made. So, and then I forgot I had given that assignment to them, and a month later they came back, and one girl walked in the door, and she said, 1,649. <laughs> and I said, What? <laughs> said, I was counting judgments. But then it turned out she was not only counting her own judgments, but she started counting everybody else's judgments. <laughs> so she was in school, and someone would say, I, I think that person is me. And she'd say, judgment, <laughs> judgment, <laughs> judgment. I think she drove her class crazy. <laughs> However, it's a really great tool for when these judging voices come up. 
I'm terrible at meditating. Judging one. I look awful today. Judging 79. You know, and by the time it's like only 10 in the morning and you're at judgment 642, I mean, you can't take it that seriously. You have to see it's this quality of the mind that's arising and coming up. One of the interesting ways of working with judging is to add some kind of phrase to a judgmental word, uh, phrase that you're having yourself. So let me give you an example. Um, you can say some, so it's just a word, it's just a set of words, but it has a charge, right? And so how do we diffuse the charge somewhat? How do we depersonalize it or disidentify some? So one of my friends was meditating at IMS at Insight Meditation Society on the East Coast. And she was, go- she was in the middle of a three-month retreat. And she was having these major, major attacks of self-hatred. And um, she just thought she was the worst meditator there. And um, she ended up, what happened? Oh, she would go outside. So for those of you who've practiced at this meditation center, it's a great, it's a beautiful practice place. But, and, and there's all these little animals that come out, like you'll be meditating, you'll be doing walking meditation, and these chipmunks will come out and kind of sniff at you and look for food and then go away. So one day she was doing the walking meditation very slowly, and this little chipmunk comes out, and as it gets closer to her, it runs away. And the first thing that goes through her head is, I am such a horrible person. Even the chipmunks hate me. <laughs> So so she then, I guess that day, had an interview with her teacher, and she went into her teacher, and she said, you know, I'm just an awful meditator. Even the chipmunks hate me. And he said, even the chipmunks hate me. The sky is blue. She said, oh, okay. And so she told me this story, and then we'd walk around saying, even the chipmunks hate me. The sky is blue. But it's 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 adding that phrase. It, it's, it's a neutral phrase. None of us are particularly triggered by the phrase, the sky is blue. Why are we triggered by even the chipmunks hate me? I don't know. Um, but seeing, it, it's this, again, as I was saying earlier, it's this other way of de- depersonalizing it, of not taking them so seriously. It's also really important to be careful of judging yourself for having judgments. You know that one? I'm judging myself, I'm judging myself for judging myself, I'm judging myself for judging myself for judging myself, right? It can go on and on. It's so painful already. Just, just notice if there's a quality of mind that judges your experience of judging. And be soft to yourself, be kind. Metta practice, those of you know, loving-kindness practice is so good for this. I did a month um, recently of metta practice, and it was just, it was like a bomb to the body. I just did it to myself. I spent a month sending metta to myself, just every day. You know, I'd wake up, it's all I did. And I made up these, I made up my own phrases that were exactly the phrases that I needed in this moment, and I, I did the same ones over the month. And one of the phrases was simply, may I accept myself just as I am. And it really, it had an effect. I mean, I can't tell you, it really, like, it was, it was sort of going at the mindfulness practice from a different angle, from the angle of self-acceptance. You know, so there would be, there would be a lot of awareness of 
you know, my experience, but it was just, it was this constantly coming back to the self-love. It's like retraining the mind, retraining ourselves how to love ourselves. We need that in this culture, and we're taught, everything we're taught is about not loving ourselves. The core of this mindfulness practice is actually self-acceptance. It's so interesting to see that, to really see it. If you're experiencing something and you're trying to be mindful, let's say you're experiencing knee pain, and you're thinking, and you're saying, okay, I'm mindful, really, I'm mindful, I'm mindful. You know, That's not mindfulness. <laughs> that's aversion. Real mindfulness is mindfulness that says, yes, I can fully accept this, even if it's unpleasant. The good news is the more that we practice mindfulness, the more we can accept our experience. So it's like, it's kind of this interesting cycle. We practice in order to accept our experience, and the more we practice, the more our experience becomes acceptable. So it's, so, so the negative part is if you're not practicing acceptance, it's hard to be fully mindful. But the more you try it, the more you're able to do it. I mean, it just kind of works in this beautiful cycle. That's how I've seen it. Some people ask this question, but what if I'm right? You know, what if I am lazy? <laughs> I am... Um, I don't know. What if I, I I should be more motivated at my job? What if I I mean you can you can name your own particular one. And I think it's really important to distinguish like sometimes it is right that we change. You know, sometimes those voices actually have some wisdom in it. So how do you distinguish the discerning voice from the voice of of um, that that's judging, that's hard on yourself? And I think the thing to see here is that, is that we can make a change when it comes from understanding. But a change that comes from aversion is not going to be that helpful in the long run. So when we're, we're, um, we're coming at ourselves saying, all right, I am really lazy, I need to be more motivated, boom, boom, that's aversive. That's judging yourself, that's bad. But if there's this quality of oh, okay, there's something here that needs to be different. Awareness, understanding, that's when, you know, there's some, there is some valuable message in that sort of superego voice. It's kind of like when I think about the world situation and how do we make change on a more vast level, on a global level. Can we change because of our love and understanding rather than aversion. Can we say, okay, I want to make a difference in the world, not because I'm so completely angry, which many of us may be, and I hate it and it's unbearable, it's intolerable, I have to work for change. What if it's, okay, I'm willing to accept it, not that it means that I think it should be that way or that I like it or want it to be that way, but that I can find a place of peace and understanding, and from that place, act. It's a very different way of looking at social change or service, and not an easy one at all, a really difficult one. 
In my practice, I was, um, as, as it was mentioned, I spent some time practicing in a Burmese monastery. And when I went to practice, I thought, okay, this is going to be, I'm going to go there and I'm just going to work really hard and I'm going to get enlightened really soon. In fact, I had, I think, some of you may have heard me talk about this before, but I actually had a schedule for getting enlightened. <laughs> I thought that I would come in and maybe I came in like, what was it, October, and I was hoping I'd get enlightened by my birthday in November. <laughs> it's so embarrassing when I think back to this, but I did. And, um, and then, so I was practicing with this really kind of intense attitude, and, and this, this very striving quality was, was manifesting in my practice, and, but I didn't see it. And the more I pushed, the worse I did, sort of, if you can measure your experience in the sense of, in the sense of like, the more discouraged I would get, because I would push and push and push. And of course, you know, one needs to be in balance in practice. You can't be, um, <laughs> you know, if you're pushing only, but you're not sitting back, your practice is out of balance. There needs to be a balance between equanimity and effort. So I was pushing and pushing and pushing and trying to get enlightened. And then November came. I wasn't enlightened. December, November, you know, waiting, waiting. And, um, and finally, I got to this point where I actually hit a wall from pushing so much. And I couldn't go further in my practice. It was like I stopped being able to be mindful. It was so interesting. And this was maybe six or seven months into my practice period. Something stopped. It was like the mindfulness couldn't go any further. I couldn't even like reach my arm out and feel the sensations of my arm. And what happened was I was, well, what I finally realized after a certain point, there was this kind of breakthrough of realizing that there was all this self-hatred that was pushing me in the practice. And that this goal of trying to reach enlightenment wasn't... I mean, it had all these noble and virtuous qualities, too. But a big part of it was that I didn't feel like I liked myself that much. And that I thought that if I could get enlightened, then I would I could like myself. Then I would be good. Then people would love me. Then I'd be always happy and kind and generous, and I'd know how to benefit all sentient beings or something. You know, that was really what was operating underneath, but I didn't know it. So that sort of striving, self-hating voice going, work harder, work harder, was really ruled by this this underlying kind of um, yuckiness. So what happened for me in the in Burma was I turned my attention to that quality of self-hatred and began to do all these practices that I was just telling you today, plus some uh, Tonglen practice, which some of you know, the practice of giving and receiving compassion, metta practice, and really, really began to um, just infuse myself with self-love. And what I started to see was that actually I was completely okay as I was. That I didn't need to go outside myself to be anything other than I already was. That it was, it was, it was quite an interesting revelation and sort of turned everything on its head. And 
when I saw it, it was like, oh, I can come back to the present moment. The present moment is fine. It's just me. It's just ordinary self with all my quirks and you know, interesting and uninteresting part, whatever. This is me, and it's totally okay to be me. And I don't have to be something other. I don't have to be some kind of um, enlightened being to be okay. So I tell this story sometimes with, with young people because I want them to see that it's, it's absolutely okay to be you. Whoever you are is perfectly fine. And that if we can see that underneath is actually this really great person that's just waiting to be out in the world and be seen, then, then it, it, it kind of counteracts the self-hatred. And... You know, so here, I read, I, I'll read you the Martha Graham quote that I love. There's a vitality, a life force, a quickening that is translated through you into action. And because there's only one of you in all time, this expression is unique. And if you block it, it will never exist through any other medium and be lost. The world will not have it. It's not your business to determine how good it is or how it compares with other expressions. It's your business to keep it yours, clearly and directly, to keep the channel open. Can we fully be ourselves? Can we make adjustments when necessary? Because sometimes we need to improve. To me, it comes down to that quality of really seeing our Buddha nature, our inner goodness, and trusting in that quality. That it's within us all. That there's all there's that there's this whole um, kind of personality and, stru- and and with all our habits and weirdness and quirks and so forth. But underneath is this true quality of being that every single one of us manifests. It's here. We have it. And I think it's when we check into that that we know that on the deepest level that we're okay. Just end with a quote from a teenager. She's someone who I started working with when she was 13, and she's, uh, I, I don't know how she's about 20 now, but this is what she told me a few years ago. After practicing meditation for a while, I began to notice those self hating voices that told me I wasn't thin enough. For years, they've been yelling at me. My thighs have been too fat since I was 11. But lately, I've begun not to take them too seriously. The other day, when I looked in the mirror and a voice said, ugly, I just laughed and said, hey, you're a voice in my head. Now I can look in the mirror and actually like what I see. So why don't we um, just take a minute, and then if anyone has any comments or thoughts or questions... Yeah. How can you yeah. deal with 
And that's the way society will be in the 200s. Sure, sure. Absolutely. You know, it's it's very it's I mean it's a huge issue in the culture and particularly when I mean in the example you gave it's it's she is getting all those messages. Um, you know, it, it, I mean it's hard to say. It's kind of like ho- hopefully creating spaces where this child would get other other information, other messages. We actually. <clears throat> We actually just recently did a teenage retreat, and there was a girl who was quite overweight. And at the end, when she shared with the group, she said, "This it was a five-day meditation retreat. She said, this is the first time I've never felt judged by, about my weight at the course of this retreat. So finding other other things to counteract it. But no, that's a tough one. I don't really have a lot of answers. especially around the neutral category, because I never thought that that was any problem. Um, but it, I've just been leaving that question open a lot about the neutral category and discerning whether it's um, wholesome or helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, because sometimes I think, oh, thank God, I'm just like everybody else human, and I feel really good. Mm-hmm. And I, I just look and see if that's wholesome or if I'm um, pumping up the self-identity. And it's, mm-hmm. Sometimes it just takes me months and months to just let it sit before any, any kind of clarity comes. And that's yes. just like one out of millions of thoughts. Right. Yeah. It's an interesting thing, this whole mana business, because from one perspective, when you when you say, oh, I'm... <laughs> I'm just like everyone else. It's it's sort of it's comforting. It's it probably has a wholesome effect on the mind. Um, but I think it, it's what you were pointing to, and what the Buddha said: the sense of self is being reified in some way. And so, me, 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 right? Yeah, I don't. Um, it's it's a great thing to investigate. Is basically where we can go. Yeah. And on that, when you said that if you bring that wisdom to the discernment, that that is, can really help. Mm-hmm. And I also read recently um, a teacher, a local teacher, said when a teen asked her about mindfulness, she she said, well, I decided if I'm kind, which is kind as wise, mm-hmm. I think that's going to be about the best I can do at this time. Mm-hmm. That's lovely, yeah. In your experience of working with uh, teenage boys, uh, what do you think they, what do you wish they, they learned? Or what, what do you think would help them in particular in this society? I think it's so much. So I'm not completely clueless about what I wanted to learn, mm-hmm. what would help him. Um, he's, he's sensitive and slightly built. My concern is how, how do I protect him? And um, because I have a, 
I do have a, a, a sense that maybe a fear that boys are brutalized to some extent. They have to be tough in this society. It's competitive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, this may not apply necessarily with your son, but I've I've loved watching boys become more in touch with their emotional lives and their and their um, their own sensitivity and their own sort of s- spiritual self. I mean, it just opens up this whole door because of the acculturation that a lot of young boys get around. You know, you can't show your emotions, or um, you have to be cool or strong or whatever. Um, so I've seen that over the years with a lot of a lot more emotion in young in young boys. That's been quite beautiful. And in the case of your son, it just—I mean, the, it sounds like some way for him to find a certain kind of strength that. He feel that that feels okay, you know what I mean. That and I don't know what that is. I mean, I'm sort of like a voice going through my head, like do Aikido or something like that, you know, to 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 access that part of him so it, it doesn't come in conflict with what's happening with the other boys, you know. Is it? I don't know if I'm actually getting at your question. But. Well, he's only fourteen and a half, so. Uh huh. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's it's like I can't actually say what your son might do, but what I could say maybe is what a little bit for you, which is um, you can only protect him so much, right? And so looking at that part of yourself, that's such a beautiful desire to want to ha- keep him safe and also practice the equanimity and the letting go that he's going to go out into the world and he's going to have to fend for himself. And he'll find his way. I'm sure he'll find his way. So... Yeah. I was thinking while you were talking that many of these kids who are now teenagers grew up with Mr. Rogers. <laughs> His calming, loving words, I like just the way you are. Right. And that many of them can just sort of go back to that time and think about Mr. Rogers like them just the way they are. <laughs> and reflect on that. Something that takes them back to their young childhood. <laughs> That's so sweet. A friend of mine did an entire Dharma talk about Mr. Rogers. <laughs> I didn't hear it, but I heard it was good. It's a nice thought. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, just to throw my two cents in here, I think that the best thing we can do with children is to uh, 
treat them with a transplant of love and respect mm. and uh, value them for who they are. And just by doing that, they'll absorb that mm-hmm. and, and feel it for themselves. Mm. Absolutely. Mm. Is it a sleepy morning? <laughs> or a depressing topic? I don't know. <laughs> yeah? I was thinking about what you were saying with, with regard to balance. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, for people who are heavily conditioned by all the messages that were continuously bombarded Mm-hmm. For for people who um, I think have, have learned to do that well, it's more like balancing the bing bang. Mm-hmm. And um, but I was also struck by your comments about how how these um, the way that you talk to yourself uh, it reinforces itself. So if you're giving yourself bad messages or even judging yourself without judging, you go way off of balance. Whereas if you do, um, for example, what you did with the meta practice, it, um, uh, that reinforces itself too. And on the one hand, being in that balance is a very easy thing to do, like the being there. So you're talking about finding kind of a strength to not get pushed around and at the same time loving oneself, sort of like a support. Yeah. No, it's an interesting balance that we have to play with this. Because, I mean, there are some teachers that say, you know, when a a self-judgment comes up, that you should actually be really ferocious and say, no. It's very interesting. I mean, try that practice. Spend a week just saying, absolutely not. You know, anytime something comes up, it's kind of that sort of wisdom, that effort, like, boom, cutting through. And then meanwhile, I think it's useful to do, be doing this underground work, this work of um, counteracting the message with metta or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you have a teacher who had, I don't want to teach you have the philosophy of cutting through it. And he has very good rationale. And if someone comes up to you and goes, well, you're a real stupid jerk, you're not going to sit there like a punching bag. You're going to say, no, that's unacceptable. Mm-hmm. And so why should you allow that to go on with yourself also? Mm-hmm. So I remember when that person, as I retrieved, the person asked that question, and he talked about being understanding and gentle. He said, but there is one exception. And it's in those cases. Because you never allow anybody else to talk to you like that. Why should you allow yourself to talk to yourself like that? The only problem that happens with some of that... Are you, are you going to make a comment? Oh. Well, um, my mind was just saying, for me, it doesn't work as well to have an absolute rule because sometimes I laugh when somebody criticizes me and 
I can get really hooked in if I sometimes do that. So um, it, to me, it's just I don't. It's not easy to to have an. I don't know what to mm-hmm. do ahead of time. Right. Right. Well, I mean, that's that's the thing. That's what I was going to point out. Some people they they say no or, or really harsh to themselves, and then they feel like they're being mean to themselves, and then they judge themselves, and it just gets into a whole loop thing. So, so you, I mean, each of us has to find what works for each each of us. And I mean, it might, it's great. Like, spend a week, go home, and and say, I'm going to work with this, counting my judgments, starting from when I get up in the morning, or I'm going to work with doing a lot of metta this week, or I'm going to say no really ferociously, or just see what happens. I mean, that's how our practice, that's how we improve our practice, is especially in our daily life. It's just, you know, take on a task, make your daily life practice, do it, and see what happens. Yes? Just something that I was pondering as everyone was sharing, something that a gentleman over here said, um, which really um, did something really wonderful inside of me, was the pool, the pool, um, what is it called? A pool cue? What's that thing? Mm-hmm. What's it called? A pole? <laughs> In the bean bags? And something about, something about extremes, something going this way or that way, just seemed mm-hmm. to be, oh, wow, wow. You mean I'm doing that all the time? <laughs> God, what happens in a bean bag? It seems like it just does this. Mm-hmm. It doesn't go like, it seems like it's just doing this. It's like, you mean I can do this? <laughs> I'm going to have to steal your analogy. <laughs> it might appear in other Dharma talks. <laughs> so is this the time or anything burning? So, yeah, thanks.